Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about critical theory and the citizen architect. Today on the show, I am joined by Milton S.F. Curry. Milton is currently the dean and professor at the University of Southern California School of Architecture, positions he's held since 2017. Previously, he held administrative and academic positions in architecture programs across the country, including University of Michigan Talman School of Architecture and Urban Planning, Harvard GSD, Cornell University, and Arizona State. He's also worked as an architect in a variety of studios and has a long commitment to publishing and scholarship and public discourse around architecture. He co-founded and edited two academic journals, Critical, Productive, and Appendix, and has written for a variety of publications. I first came across Milton's work actually in the first issue of Deem Journal. You remember I had the editors on the show uh, at the end of last year and really loved his interview in that issue and wanted to have him on the show to talk about his commitment to writing around architecture, design, and culture. So in this episode, we talk about that. We talk about his early interest in design and history and how that shaped his understanding of critical theory. We talk about the idea of the citizen architect and how architects and designers can reclaim ideas around design thinking and have a a truly positive impact on the world. And we talk about why design students can't check their identity at the door and why they should and need to bring their lived experiences into the design uh, discourse and profession. It's a fascinating conversation. It covers a lot. I really, really learned a lot from this and, and admire how he thinks about being a designer today. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. I'm also really excited to announce that Scratching the Service has relaunched our membership program. It's now on Patreon. For the last three years, this show has been supported entirely through listener support, and we're making it even easier for you to help sustain the show. We're offering three monthly tiers, $3 for students, $5 for patrons, and then $10 for super fans that give you access to all sorts of bonus content like a monthly newsletter, early episodes, transcripts, and exclusive interviews, all while helping to financially support this show. So if you like Scratching the Surface, if you want to see it continue, I hope you consider joining our new membership program over on Patreon. Your support truly means so much to me. Thank you, as always, for listening. And here is my conversation with Milton Curry. want to start in in perhaps a kind of peculiar and specific place as I was preparing for this and thinking about what I wanted to talk to you about. I came across another interview that you had done where you mentioned that uh, as a a child, you were very interested in design uh, from a young age, and you were actually really interested in graphic design (laughs) originally. And I would like to, to talk about that a little bit. Where did your interest in design come from and and what was it about graphic design that immediately kind of caught your interest i i think it you know i pinpointed to kind of um i don't know second third fourth grade where the interest was uh i've always had an interest in writing and and kind of that that form of expression but also um design and i used to spend a lot of time designing the covers of reports and things uh, (laughs) on spending uh proportionately less time writing because i think i was better at that or uh, could do that, uh, you know, well and satisfactorily. Um, but I really got into kind of designing, you know, the cover of, of these reports, whether it was on uh, uh, foreign country or, or something else. Mm-hmm. 
the other um the other aspect of that is uh i was my, my parents uh my mother went to school with uh the wife of a, a black astronaut um mm. and um ed dwight who who ended up coming out of the kennedy space program not uh not going to space but actually becoming an artist becoming a sculptor and so uh, I was exposed to to his art making, and he was very uh, encouraging of me to to sketch and to draw uh, more traditional kind of um, drawing, portrait drawing, things like that. And so I think it's drawing and graphic design that that were attractive to me. And then um, as I traveled uh, with my parents, my dad was a doctor, and as we traveled to medical conferences and would stay at different hotels. Um, uh, we stayed at a lot of Portman, John Portman design hotels, and and I I would you know do a lot of sketching of those uh, hotels and were very intrigued with them when I was growing up. So it all kind of came together. I was uh, subscribed I subscribed to architectural record I think in uh, ninth or tenth grade, and so I would get oh, those those issues and, and just see what was happening in the design fields, and and I was as interested in interiors. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was the architecture. So, um, you know, just a very curious, uh, mind kind of at that point, looking at, at kind of the world, uh, from, from my, uh, uh, room in, in central California. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's so funny. I, my, my childhood was very similar and I, I very early on was interested in kind of design related things. I didn't have the word design. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up around designers or that design was a term, but, um, you know, fell into drawing, like you designed the cover of school projects and things like that. I subscribed to, um, not architectural record. Is that the one that you said architectural record you subscribed to in 10th grade? I think record at some point digest as well, even though yeah. I now find it a bit quite garish. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was going to say, I subscribed to Architectural Digest. I think I was in, I think I was in eighth or ninth grade uh, at the time and, and read it every month when it, when it, uh, when it arrived. So I, you're, you know, even though we are from different parts of the country, different, uh, different generations, uh, I totally know what you're talking about. Um, where, when, um, you know, when did architecture specifically then become kind of the, the vessel, I guess, for all of this curiosity uh was that when you were kind of planning on on college well no actually that came uh quite early as well probably Hmm. around around fifth grade i was told by a uh, my fifth grade teacher that i'd never become an architect because i wasn't good at math um this is at at fifth grade um and so um i said well you know thanks for your opinion that's very interesting uh, but, but I think it was it was around that time, uh, fifth or sixth grade, uh, you know, became interested in kind of two things, architecture and, and um, uh, being a, a brain surgeon. Uh, mm. So I, I, the connection is just, you know, precision, specificity, order. And I think um, I've always been very organized um, and kind of see the world that way. And so I think that that, that was a, the kind of connection. My dad was a doctor as well. Um but as I got into, um, you know, ninth and 10th grade in those areas, I mean, I began to be very attracted to the art courses and mm-hmm. drafting courses, which were, um, you know, very, very detailed uh, exercises uh, that, that you found in the, that you had in those courses. And all of that kind of came together to, to begin to think about architecture as a, 
um, as something that can be very creative and also, um, you know, something that can be very impactful to larger communities and, and mm-hmm. people. And, and so it became, I think it started with something very, um, for me, that was very insulated or interior. And then, and then, you know, around, um, high school, you know, I was also very attracted to uh, history courses, things like things like that. Became something that came really more uh, out of the kind of insularity of of thought to something that you know. Well, this could this is something that actually has these qualities that really extend to larger communities and and the impacts of architecture. You know, is not just the kind of satisfaction, the, the aesthetic satisfaction of having created something, but actually there's something more there. Yeah, I want to I, I want to come back to that idea actually, but just to to follow this thread and I promise we won't just kind of go through your whole background in order, but mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that you you talk about in high school you were drawn to the the kind of art classes and the drafting classes, but you were also interested in the the history classes and what struck me in in reading about you and and thinking about this conversation is it seems from the beginning you had this kind of parallel interest in both the practice of architecture, the actual kind of designing of buildings, but also this kind of critical theory side, this reading side, this this theory side. You started your first academic journal while you were a student at Harvard. Is that right? Um, yeah, before my last, before the end of my last semester as a, a graduate student at Harvard, uh, I started. Uh, appendix journal right. with two other, two other persons, one who was in the same class as me at Harvard, the Master of Architecture post-professional program, and then another individual who was um, who had who was in uh, who was teaching at Harvard, who had done his master's, degree, but he was also doing his PhD at Harvard. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of where that where those in those two interests, that kind of the the writing, the kind of intellectual side, the history intersected for you with architecture and and then the kind of uh, I, I don't I don't know the word the the drive or the desire to start this journal while you're a you know a, a graduate student what what was uh, you know what were you kind of wanting to achieve with that or what was what kind of dialogues did you want to have that you felt like uh you know you could do through through this forum that you maybe weren't getting otherwise well, maybe to be a little bit uh, biographical to kind of frame yeah. that question, um, you know, I grew up as a uh, essentially an upper middle class uh, home in, in Central Valley in Fresno, California. My dad was a, a doctor, a family physician, and my mom was um, a housewife for uh, most of my um, childhood and then became a community activist and mm. a community organizer and then became uh, the first black uh, person elected to the school board in, in Fresno, California. Mm. Um, my on my father's side, my um, I had an uncle who was president of Bishop College, which was a black college that mm-hmm. he moved from Marshall, Texas to Dallas, Texas, and uh, built into um, a very successful um, uh, college, uh, black college, and he became. Uh, president of the United Negro College Fund during, uh, I believe, Straddle the Ford and Nixon, uh, Ford and Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And he's someone who who um, got his PhD in theoretical math, which must have been um, in the nineteen early nineteen hundreds. And uh, so he was um, influential, as, as were my parents, as role models. Um, and my I'm named after him. Uh, my first name uh, is is Milton uh, from my uh, uncle Milton King Curry, who was president of Bishop College and president of the United Year College Fund. Uh, and my middle initials, uh, S and F, uh, Sandy Frederick, is are from Sandy Frederick Ray, who was um, my godfather and who was Martin Luther King's roommate at Morehouse College. Uh, oh, wow. Uncle Milton also went to Morehouse College, as did all of my uncles on my dad's side uh, went to Morehouse College. So, um, and my uh, godfather, Sandy Frederick Ray, spoke at um, Dr. Martin Luther King Sr.'s uh, wife's uh, funeral. So Martin Luther King's uh, mother's funeral. Um, mm-hmm. Sandy F. Ray spoke at that. So I think that... Um, Looking back, um, the idea of service, the idea of um, activism, the idea of um, social equity and, and commitments to that were really ingrained in my family from the start. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't grow up in a middle class, upper middle class household, but we actually lived in a working class black community. That's where my dad's patients were. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then my mom became a community organizer and, and fought for um, equal treatment during the desegregation program, uh, the busing, forced busing program. I lived through all those years um, uh, as a a student in the public school system, but also as the son of someone whose mother was out in the streets and on the uh, many nights of the week um, in those battles. So that's where I come from. And so I think it, it, in the end, it it kind of feels natural to be in a position where, um, that we found ourselves in at Harvard, uh, where I went to grad school, where there was no represent, virtually no representation of black mm-hmm. thought, uh, in, uh, academic journals. And there was, uh, very little, um, interest in it seemingly. And, uh, we wanted to break through that and wanted to, um, you know, bring, other people into conversations that were not being had. And we were met with quite a bit of resistance, I have to say, but mm-hmm. we, um, it was very, a very successful and, and educational endeavor. And I think, um, you know, very proud of, of, of that effort. I think it's, uh, looking back, it was historic, um, in many ways. So it came out of, at least for me, and I think for, for the other quarters came out of, um, a notion that, um, also around that time, uh, in the early 90s, um, we were seeing the emergence of a real articulation of Black thought and of uh, the thought of, of Latinx persons and Indigenous persons and notions of identity being brought to the fore within the academic construct. Um, we're seeing that in other disciplines like art history and cultural theory and English departments, but we weren't seeing that in architecture schools, uh, uh, either amongst design studio faculty nor amongst history and theory faculty. And I think that presented a, um, a gap and a challenge, and, and that's what we were trying to be. I, I have a question that I'm, I'm going to try to connect. Like, I have like a couple big ideas that I want to try to connect into a coherent question for you, because I think um, I, I'm, I'm curious about this kind of relationship 
that you were seeing while you were a student and even kind of in the, the early part of your career between kind of race and architecture or race in the built environment. And a, a subject that comes up on this podcast all the time is that design is a type of ideology made artifact. It takes, you know, ways of seeing the world, points of view, opinions, and it solidifies them in many ways. And then, you know, shapes how we how we relate to to the environment. And architecture obviously is is the best example of that. The way a building can can um uh, you know, give credence to an idea or serve a certain community or the way roads are built to separate or to displace people. And I'm, I'm interested, you said, uh, that there was not a lot of interest in, um, kind of black voices and, and diverse voices in architecture at the time. How did you kind of find a way in to, how, how did you find a way to kind of make those discussions heard uh because you're right this was a kind of historical journal there weren't people talking about this um do you know what i'm trying to say like like what were the the kind of conversations that were happening and how did you kind of find a way to to bring in the things you were interested in do you know what i mean i think so um you know in a way um it, there, there's a lot of self-education that had to happen. And I, again, I credit, um, you know, influential mentors and and uh, professors along the way. Val Wark at Cornell uh, was very influential in terms of being able to think outside of the notion of, of typology to think about genre. Um, and reading, uh, you know, reading people um, like Anthony Vidler and the notion of the uncanny. I mean. These were, were elements that were part of, I think, a kind of self-education of trying to, in a way, unlearn some of the right. some of the um, conventional ways that, that architecture is being discussed and how the discourse, particularly around architectural theory, was being put forth, uh, and how um, the discourses of cultural theory and and you know, signifying monkey Henry Louis Gates and and bell hooks and Cornell West and all the figures that were that were um, being inventive and innovative in that discourse around race and um, and 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 thinking, you know, and how that evolved in other disciplines. So it was a bit of self-education of taking courses, of um, uh, relying on on things that, that thoughts that had emerged out of other courses that weren't directly related to race, but but that you could use methodologies to begin to think a new right. about race. So the genre, the idea of thinking about race through notions of genre or um, thinking about gentrification through ideas of, of, of tourism, of how, how we see others and otherness within the context of, of our experiences through, through a city. So it's, it's kind of pulling these threads in a way of developing a kind of self-education. So in that way, um, um, you know, we saw, uh, people at Cornell West lecture at Harvard, uh, which was uh, very interesting. I was, uh, you know, had the opportunity to listen to that live. Mm. And so there were people coming a little bit over to our area yeah. of architecture, and, and, but not really with the knowledge and the history and the, you know, the, the historical and theoretical context to, to think it through. So I think it was, it was started without, um, the, the journal was started with a series of questions more than you know, proclamations and imperatives. And I think mm. we tried to use the, um, 
you know, the, the people who we uh, invited to submit work and the work that we published, we tried to use that as a way of thinking through these issues, thinking through feminism in the face of uh, racial disparities in who was actually benefiting from feminism, for example. Um, thinking about sexuality in space, uh, the work that had been done by uh, uh, Beatrice Colomina, the uh, canonical uh, volume there, and wanting to engage it and, and wanting to uh, advocate for that, but yet not seeing black women represented there in a way that was uh, uh, valued. And so I think it was it was taken, and I think so often even today, we, we're dealing with these issues is taken often as a, um, you know, as a, as a resistance to, um, you know, how these discourses are proceeding in some cases without people of color, mm-hmm. but it actually is wanting, you know, an invitation to have a conversation. And right. I think that, um, that was, uh, you know, it was surprising to me that, that a, dis, a, a discipline that, that likes robust debate and wants, uh, uh, conversations and, and, you know, critiques and reviews are always very fraught with, uh, tensions and, and you know, people mm-hmm. at each other's throats. And that's, that's in some ways a very good thing. But I was uh, surprised at, at, at some of the resistance that we had when, mm-hmm. uh, when we did come out, uh, because it really was an invitation for uh, conversations. I'm, uh, you know, I, it's interesting to me, and we don't have to stay, like, like for, for this question, we don't have to stay in appendix and kind of in your time, time at Harvard, but maybe extrapolate out to you know, that, that discourse generally over the course of your career, um, I am as guilty as anyone of being interested in the conversation, interested in the ideas, interested in, in the theories, um, sometimes at the detriment of the actual practice of the detriment of like how this stuff actually manifests itself. And I'm not saying that there's a separation there or that, that, that those are different, but I'm, I'm interested in your perspective how did that interest in the conversation in those questions did has that changed how you think about the role of the architect of how design actually functions in the world or kind of what that means to be a a designer and an architect uh yes but i think just just to kind of scroll forward in time to where we are mm-hmm. today. And when I, when I came to the University of Southern California uh, to be dean of the School of Architecture, um, uh, kind of, again, without knowing, put into a, a inaugural speech, um, the idea of, of citizen architects. It's not the first, I'm not the first person to use it, and I, I didn't, never claimed that, but I was trying to define it anew and to mm-hmm. define it in a new way. And, and that has um, in some ways become the, the, a framing mechanism for how we think about uh, where we're going as a school. And I guess the way I would answer your question is before we talk about the role of the architect, we have to talk about the role of the human and the role of the person. And I think for far too long, we've thought about architects as kind of siloed in which their professional identity is siloed from their personal identity. And one of the things that, that I said when I came here is, um, and I say it to, to freshman students, um, you know, you, you go to the airport and you uh, check your bags and you get on the plane, then you get off the plane at your destination, you go to baggage claim, you pick up your bags. 
That's the way I felt architecture school was. Drop your identity at the door, assimilate, and then pick it up when you do your thesis. Right. And be, you know, be who you are. And I think that's just so antithetical to where we want architects to be and how we want them to be confident in their voice and also to be authentic in the ways in which they're pursuing aesthetics to uh, development, to uh, equitable use of environment and climate, et cetera. So I think it's very important to put those two things back together. Mm-hmm. If you're not a good person, <laughs> you're not a good architect. Right. Uh, so right. I think we have to start with, um, no, don't check your identity at the door, bring it. And let's, let's, let's confront um, your identity or what you perceive it to be and how it's evolving. Let's, you know, bring that into conversations in studios and seminars. So you don't think like I've got to be in a closet uh, for four years while I absorb and assimilate what architecture has been over the you know, history, uh, over the course of history. And then, and then I can rediscover who I am, you know, when I do a thesis and, and graduate. So I think that's kind of where I am today is that, um, you know, the architect has to be part of society and has to see themselves not as outside of that, even though they're working for a client. I think the client architect relationship is evolving and I think uh, Mm -hmm. it needs to evolve. And, you know, um, clients are, um, you know, clients are, 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 communities clients are you know the larger kind of polity of a city particularly if you're doing urban development work and so mm-hmm. that's the perspective i think when you get into the specific issues of aesthetics and um the kind of work the kind of work that that we need do we need single family do we need multifamily? i mean these are some of these are political and policy questions but i think it starts with a multidisciplinary perspective on how your role as an architect is complicitous with right. things that you may or may not want it to be complicit with. And it's also impactful in ways that you might not uh, appreciate its impact on communities and uh, people. I, I would love to hear you talk more about what that looks like in an educational setting. Because I, and the reason I ask that is because I think about the same things in regards to graphic design. And I think, um, there's a there's a long graphic design history that kind of uh, sets up these hierarchies about this is what good graphic design looks like. Uh, these are the rules of graphic design, and and many of those rules and many of that those ideas of what we call good graphic design are actually a very narrow set of theories from some some white European men in the mid century. Uh, that we're still kind of propagating that aesthetic and that that is what the designer does. The graphic designer is neutral. Uh, You are communicating someone, you are designing for somebody else's message. And I think that's starting to change in graphic design. And we're starting to kind of see that that is a limited view and doesn't always work uh, or or maybe often doesn't doesn't work at all anymore. Um, but, But I see this tension in the schools that I teach in and even in my own kind of teaching practice about, um, you know, how do you teach history and these theories and and, and show them the trajectory, you know, show them the, the history that they are entering into or one of the histories they're enter- entering into um, while also teaching them these are the things that you need to know as a designer to get a job, whether that's technology or, you know, certain certain skills 
with this idea of the individual, with this idea of kind of who you are, your own identity, and how all those things fit together, I I find I I want to find a way to to have those kind of fit together and in, into a really harmonious way, and and I don't know how to do that. I'm curious how you think about that kind of blending this, you know, this is what you need to know to be an architect, but also here's how, here's how to start thinking about bringing your own identity into this. And here's thinking about history, but not the only history, you know what I mean? Sure. I think, <clears throat> look, I, I think the way architecture schools, you know, the way professional degree programs organized is, is through a series of, um, design studios and, and then, and then courses that, that kind of split, uh, between um, you know areas that that have to do with with technology and history and theory and site and climate mm-hmm. and so forth, and those are, those requirements have adjusted over time. Um, I think that um, from my perspective as as a dean as an, as an educator, I think um, we have to put more pressure on on those um, courses, and I think historically there has been maybe an opportunity for more um, uh, challenging and, and, and uh, you know, challenging theoretical ideas to come through the silo of, of architectural theory, um, where history is seen as, as a kind of just the facts. And, and, then, and then structures is seen as, again, just, you know, it's just, it's just science. And then uh, design studio is, is kind of, you know, somewhat open, uh, but, uh, you know, hewing closely to certain typologies and ways of making buildings, et cetera, et cetera. I think we need to put pressure on all of those aspects of the educational, um, uh, you know, all those, those pieces that go into the educational uh, fabric for students. And that's what we're hearing from students directly. Structures is not, um, structures and technology is not um, uh, innately, um, nascent of bias, um, right. neither is history or theory or design typology. So I think the interdisciplinarity of how we pursue architecture is very important to how we think about architecture as professionals. And we have to be very um, sober-minded about the kind of situations that we are facing in our society. We're in a neoliberal late capitalist situation where the idea of uh, egalitarianism uh, as we conceptualize it, uh, even as Rawls, John Rawls uh, idealized it, is not available. It's right. certainly not available in this uh, environment, uh, no matter what kind of um, you know, philanthropy you throw at it. And so um, that's a reality. Um, white supremacy, as we've seen in the last week, months, years, is a reality. Um, mm-hmm. Racism is a reality. And I think the longer that we in architecture schools kind of bu- have built the bubble to where these are marginal to right. the core enterprise of architecture capital A, I think we've become more and more irrelevant to how to help from our perspective to innovate and in some cases solve to some of those intrinsic uh, and entrenched societal issues. I see it as an opportunity. Um, again, the resistance and the, the, the energy of social movements present interesting, uh, challenging, but also potentially provocative 
and inspiring opportunities to actually um, create something with with people that may not look like you. That's exciting, and I think if we can we can build on the excitement of that versus the the tension that is uh, almost uh, habitual that we feel when, when these issues are, are brought up. I think we can be in a, in a very different place. I think we have to be in a very different place. And and you've talked about before how architects and architectural thinking has kind of um, taken a backseat to this this kind of codified design thinking um, that that purports to solve or or attempt to solve many of these things that we're talking about, but often does not is often a band aid or often just a kind of uh, a visual rebrand in many ways. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the limits of what you see as kind of the limits of quote unquote design thinking and how the architect can maybe not not reclaim that but start to be a part of that conversation again? Well, I think the, the problem starts with with how discourses become so complicitous with the market and market capitalism that they become complicitous with um, the most negative uh, aspects of that. And I think um, when I talk about architecture thinking um, and I talk with students and, and faculty about the idea of, you know, what is it to be an architectural thinker? It is to, first and foremost, um, allow yourself the imagination to go beyond the notion of a market context. And so right. if the imperative is to, is to provide, you know, a public benefit, whether it be a promenade or a public park or housing, um, if you, if you're already constrained by the notion of the market dynamics, uh, you're never going to imagine anything outside of that. And I think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the problem with design thinking is that um, it, it colonizes every thought to be in service of generating a product or a solution to a problem, the problem which may have emerged through market-based thinking that, that crowds out notions of egalitarianism, for example. So you take the problem as a given, and then you, de- and then you determine or think through a solution based on a kind of notion of uh, the indomitable spirit of entrepreneurism to um, to solve every every problem and 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 to you know to do it within a market based context. I choose to use architecture thinking as a way to get outside of the constraints of the market based context, the neoliberal context, and I think um, that provides um, the possibility of, of thinking anew, not only about solutions, but also about problems. And I think, um, I think a, a, a symptom of that or symptom of, of the negative aspects of design thinking is also smart cities. I think that um, it's interesting to think about that term. And again, I'm not saying I'm against technology. I'm not. But when you think about how cities have been, uh, uh, cities have been essentially engineered in this late capitalist context in our, in our country, um, to be bereft of the resources to actually do what they need to do to execute the egalitarian vision of, of, of a city, of a polity. And therefore, privatization has to take hold. 
and then privatization gives way to efficiency and models of um, experts and, and so forth. And the average citizen gets marginalized uh, in that process. And so within that context to talk about smart cities, to me, is not as productive as talking about smart citizens. And I think when you have a smart citizenry, you then have a more informed and robust uh, uh, debate, conversation, relationship with uh, government and also with uh, other entities that are that are supporting the role of government and also supporting the role of, of bottom-up uh, investments, time, money, and uh, intellectual investments that communities are making on their own to make things better. I uh, was associate dean at University of Michigan and mm-hmm. did a lot of work on behalf of our university and our school, uh, School of Architecture and Urban Planning in Detroit. And the lessons that I learned there was that democracy, uh, this is in 2010 to 2017, that democracy is very fragile. Um, I mm-hmm. saw uh, Detroit and other cities decimated by emergency managers appointed by the governor with no responsibility to the citizens whatsoever. Um, and they ran ramshot over the citizens of the cities uh, that had those emergency managers. Uh, the fraudulent bankruptcy of Detroit was also a, a, a casualty of that. And um, where a democracy is threatened, um, you have corruption and all kind of nefarious practices step in. And so I think, uh, you know, maybe it's my experience in Detroit that, you know, when you talk about design thinking in smart cities, yeah. I mean, my God, when you decimate a city that can't even pay for um, electricity and bus service to get kids from their home to school, um, what does it mean to talk about a smart city? Right. What does it mean to talk about design thinking as, as you know, helping a community solve a problem? It's great that community gets more involved. It's great that you might plant a community garden, uh, but um, that's marginal to the, the widespread um, thievery that essentially robbed them of uh, an equivalent uh, framework to live and to raise their kids as other communities, um, even those with other races that are living within the same municipality. I'm, I'm interested in how architects and this this idea of architectural thinking, and I, I think you know maybe we don't even need to limit this to strictly architectural designers, but any type of designer. How do how do you have thoughts on how they can actually be a part of that conversation again? Uh, so much of the these types of conversations that we're talking about, and even the one that we're having now, and and you know even going back to the 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 journals that you you've edited, so much of that can sometimes be insular. It can be designers talking to other designers, architects talking to other architects, uh, and in you're right, it is about kind of reengaging with our role as humans and re-engaging with the citizen, how do we start to turn some of these conversations back outward, back out to the public? So, you know, the, the architect or the designer can be more than just service provider, you know, that can actually be someone who is participating in these conversations to enact, uh, you know, deeper change. Well, I think that, you know, it can happen along many registers. I mean, not to advertise 
the second journalist. <laughs> I no, go for it. Needed my head examined to start, but critical productive is. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I guess you could say we we produced two two test versions, but we're we're going to be um, relaunching pretty soon this year. But with Critical Productive, which is a journal I started um, uh, in the uh, late in uh, 2010-2011, the idea was was to actually, um, you know, have articles and ideas that could be um, accessible to a broader audience. I mean, I think the first thing is is being accessible Mm -hmm. to you know, academics outside of architecture and then being accessible to kind of, you know, professionals in the discipline and then being accessible to people outside of either the discipline of architecture or academia. And I think when I, when I look at some of those articles, which are, which some of which are dense and some of which are, um, uh, you know, still insular in some ways, but I think the idea of looking at, for example, I'm thinking of, of an article that Richard Summer and Glenn Forley did on Highway Beautiful, looking at the 19th. Mm-hmm. Selma to Montgomery Voting Rights March in the context of the Highway Beautiful uh, program that Lyndon Johnson had put forth, national legislation, wanted people to get out and see the countryside, and how the civil rights movement used that public right-of-way to make the, the political and visual spectacle that that is seared into our memories today. And so the idea of, of the linkages between national infrastructure um, beautification, the aesthetics of landscape, and this this very um, searing struggle for um, racial and civil rights. Um, thinking about the work that we published on Lance Wyman, a graphic designer, goes to Mexico City, um, thinking that he might be there for a weekend, ends up uh, designing the entire um, uh, logo mark and campaign uh, for the 1968 Olympics. Little did he know uh, he'd be caught up in in one of the major protests of that country in the middle of the Olympics, and how his his graphic design would be used by the protesters as the background background or backdrop for a series of resistant images that would uh, that would articulate their their struggle. And so, I think there's a lot um, to be gained by using uh, the visual arts as a language that that can. Um, crossover and be understood by by the general public. Um, I think today, you know, the conversations so often about real estate um, are not about real estate. It's about space. It's about the design of buildings. It's about the privatization of space. That's an architectural conversation. It's not right. just a financial conversation with real estate developers. When I look at at uh, projects like Hudson Yards and and others, mm-hmm. there's robust debate to be had on. You know, what is the nature of public space? What's the nature of private space? Um, how do we want classes and races to connect with one another in, in, in communities where we want people to be in dense living situations? Um, we want things to be affordable. And so I think those are those often come back to architecture um, after the, you know, the, the in quotation grownups have made the decision. <laughs> Right. Where I think actually we need to be at the beginning of those conversations, at the origins of those conversations. And I think more architects need to be mayors and uh, urban planners and uh, people involved in, in government, people involved in real estate. Um, 30 to 40 percent of, of, uh, of our students who go through architecture school today, 
that's not only USC, but, but our peer institutions are not going into traditional practices. Mm. I think partially that's because they're not seeing the ability to make these kind of impacts or to have these kind of conversations in traditional practices. And yeah. so traditional practice has to change and adapt to the generational expectation that your practice in whatever work it's doing is going to deal with these issues. And the other flip side of that is let's celebrate the fact that, that like law schools and business schools, we're educating people who have the confidence and the intelligence to work across a number of related fields and provide value. So right. I'm okay with that. Um, I sometimes have conversations with alumni uh, here who are professionals and say, well, I want architect capital A. Um, and, and believe me, we have uh, architect capital A seared into the DNA of our school, but yeah. that's not mutually exclusive from also saying, I want to be uh, impactful in uh, larger ways or in working in, in collaboration with people who are doing public art or people who are doing public right. housing, et cetera, et cetera. It's not mutually exclusive. And I think, uh, as you know, the skills that you learn in school um, uh, in a rigorous way are, are, are seared into you. You don't, you don't lose those skills. You actually um, continue to hone those skills given the different career paths that you choose. I have two more questions to to close out the conversation that are perhaps a little more personal, a little more kind of about you and your own work. The first is I'm, you know, you're somebody who has a kind of non-traditional practice at this point. You you are a, a, an architect. You're also a writer, an editor, an educator, an administrator. I'm I'm interested in how you see are all those different roles different for you? Do you see that as one kind of design practice, I guess, and then how you kind of think about moving between design, between scholarship, between administration, how does that actually look in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question to, to kind of be at. I think, um, no, they're not all the same. I think they all require a slightly different skill set, and I think, um, but I do think they're complementary of one another. So I think mm -hmm. the idea of Maybe I'll go at it through the idea of curation. I think that's Ooh. a nice, um, nuanced way to think about it. I think as, as an administrator, um, I'm a curator, ultimately. Um, mm. And I'm trying to, um, you know, with as light a touch as possible, um, create, you know, an imprint for um, the faculty uh, to to work within and, mm -hmm. and to feel like they have agency, but also to feel like there's, there's a higher cause than simply my own course. And it doesn't mean that, that, that ideologically um, there's perfect alignment between uh, what I might think and what they might think. But the idea that, that I've got to, if not defend, I've got to um, have robust conversations about, about, different ideologies in play at the school and, and amongst uh, our peers, um, I can't simply opt out of that conversation. Right. And so I think it's, it's, uh, it's more with the curation, um, putting forth the idea of, for example, citizen architect um, as a challenge to, to think, think through that lens on how you, approach architecture today 
in your research, in your teaching, and let that let that form a kind of uh, consistency of, of, of conversation that we would uniquely have at the school that, that perhaps is not being had at other schools. Um, and so I think, I think curation is very important. Um, the same with, with editing. I think it's again, to put in print, but also to, um, you know, to foreground those issues that, that I think need to be discussed and then to try to, 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 to get people and ideas in conversation with one another where you feel like, um, um, something new is being um, talked about. Something new is being, you know, possibilities are emerging, and I yeah. think I think that's a very important key element in all of this. Um, and I think it's probably the thing that that connects all. Of My last question: uh, I'm just curious what you're reading right now. Well, I was reading. Uh, I was had been working on a. Um, an essay for the Museum of Modern Art uh, catalog for Black Reconstructions, which opens in uh, early or late February uh, with uh, uh, thinking about uh, Black architects. There's 10 teams of Black architects working on um, through the idea of reconstruction. So I was reading um, uh, the book on on reconstructions by by the historian Eric Foner. Mm, Right. Uh, So that's one book that I was reading. Um, and uh, I've been reading uh, Matthew Desmond, uh, Evicted, which is um, mm-hmm. actually work about um, um, how evictions used to be very rare and now how they're they're pretty, pretty standard practice. And there's another book I haven't, I haven't read, but I, I have it sitting on my um, desk is Set the Fire Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s by Mike Davis and John Wiener. Uh, very interesting um, book about Los Angeles in the 60s, uh, social movements. Thank you so much for, for this conversation. It was really nice to, to have this conversation and talk a, a little bit about it with you. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for, for such insightful questions and, and really a wonderful conversation and the work that you're doing, I think, you know, adds to this, uh, to our mm-hmm. discipline and enriches, uh, the conversation. So thank you for, for, uh, doing such thoughtful work and having, you know, such a wide range of people that, um, that you're bringing. This episode was recorded on January 20th, 2021. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at surface podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts at scratching the Thanks for listening.